0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Theology Taco Podcast. My name is Tim, and I am the host. I want to thank you for tuning in. On this episode, I'm going to talk about politics, especially here in the United States, and how Christians can navigate the political climate. I want to talk about the condition of the current climate, how Christians can fit into a two-party system. Specifically, I want to focus on three biblical passages that I think every practicing Christian should meditate on throughout the election cycle. And yes, that does include me. But first, if you have listened to past episodes, you may have heard me say that this episode tonight would be talking about the immigration uh, crisis at our southern border. To be honest with you, I am not at a point that I can do that. I have very good resources and people have been very generous to me uh, regarding those resources, but I have not given them the attention that I think is necessary, especially with me being in school at the moment. What I'm talking about tonight, that's been brewing in my brain for some. I think it's pretty obvious not only do we have another election cycle in full swing, but we also have talks about impeachment and then a few months ago we were we had the whole Mueller report thing. To be honest, the political scene is incredibly divisive and polarizing, especially because of the last election. It seems like everyone is that's in a position of influence is doing their part to increase that or to amplify that polarization you know it's all the toxic all the toxic rhetoric coming out of each party the news media who have pundits that just speculate on these shows for like 24 hours a day seven days a week Then you got extremist groups out there like uh antifa who are throwing concrete milkshakes at counter protesters Then you've got R2-D2 out there cussing up a storm. And yes, even the president has played his part on Twitter. It's exhausting, and yet we just, we can't help to feed into all this. But what about Christians? We're supposed to be different, aren't we? Pastor Tim Keller, who's a well-known pastor in New York City, he recently wrote an op-ed for the New York Times, and it was asking where Christians are supposed to fit into a two-party system. And he came up with the conclusion that we can't fit into it, we can't fit into that system because it would mean that we'd have to wholesale, excuse me, wholesale accept every position of either party. In either party, there are some positions that are contrary to our Christian worldview and how God commands us through the Bible to act. However, that doesn't seem to stop either party from pandering to Christian. Uh, I'm not saying that Christians in the United States need to avoid politics. Uh, We can't. Uh, I'm not saying that we should. We can't. The Bible calls God's people to act politically uh, many times. And we're fortunate to live in a place where we can express and vote for our beliefs. So we should vote. But since we do vote, and hopefully we vote our convictions we're also ultimately going to end up choosing one party over the over the other more than once with that being the case we become open to influences that shape the political party that we're part of uh, even the toxic elements and we even become in danger of holding our pol- political beliefs so tightly or wrapping them around our faith so tightly that it becomes idolatrous. When that happens, the effectiveness of our witness for Christ is weakened. Since we are in the midst of a new cycle and all the other political things going on that Washington just keeps throwing in our face... I want to talk about three passages from the Bible that I'd like to keep uh, I'd like you and me to keep in mind uh as we get closer and closer to the actual election. So the first passage comes from two different places and I'll elaborate on that in a minute. The first place is Matthew 22:37 through 40. It says Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. There's the obvious here love God with everything you are made up of, over and above everything else. There's so much to say about that first commandment. In fact, I've written, or I wrote a paper on that first commandment. It's part of something called the Shema, which also appears in Deuteronomy. But it's something that every Israelite uh, in Jesus' time knew, and it was stamped on their identity. But that's kind of another episode. Here, Jesus wants his audience to recognize, though, that the next commandment holds almost as equal value as the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says that on these two commandments hang all the law because you can basically split the ten commandments in half and show how each half demonstrates love for God and love for your neighbor. There's something we need to understand about that second part of the passage, though, its real significance isn't really found in Matthew, but in its twin appearance in Luke 10. In Luke 10, it's framed a little differently, and it, is, it isn't even Jesus who quotes it. It's an expert in the Torah. Some uh, translations will say lawyer. But the expert asks Jesus how to inherit eternal life. Then Jesus asks him what he thinks, and then the expert quotes the uh that first command or the first and second command. Jesus affirms that answer, but then the expert, he gets all mischievous and asks, "Who's my neighbor?" And Jesus, being the coolest cat in the history of cool cats, answers with a story that puts the expert in his place. The story is of the parable of the good Samaritan. If you do not know that story of the Good Samaritan, do me a favor and pause this and look up Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 36. Here's the significance of that parable. When the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, they mixed with the Israelites and they gave birth to a people known as the Samaritans. Later on in history, the Samaritans also opposed the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem when the Jews from the southern kingdom came back from Babylon, and the Samaritans built their own temple elsewhere. Because of the Samaritans' mixed heritage, the uh, Jews from Jerusalem considered them as unclean and treated them like outcasts. There was an intense disrespect towards the Samaritans. They were despised. But here in this story, the Samaritan is the only one who stopped and had pity on the Jewish man who was left for dead and and he brought him back to health at his own expense. At the end of the parable, Jesus asked who then was the injured man's neighbor. The expert reluctantly answered that it was the Samaritan. I think you can see where I'm going with this. We, in a time of increasing political polarization between between parties. Uh, We're in that time. But we need to remember that as much as we might disagree with the other party's stance, to the point of bitterness even, God commands us to love them the way that the good Samaritan loved the Jew who was left for dead. For the liberal, the conservative is your neighbor. For the conservative, the liberal is your neighbor. For the socialist, the capitalist is your neighbor. For the capitalist, the socialist, is your neighbor. If you indeed love God, especially with everything that you have, then the overflow of that love will become love towards your neighbor. So if you're running around saying how much you love God, yet calling somebody with an I'm with her shirt a libtard every chance you get, or if you're running around and saying how much you love God, But calling someone with a MAGA hat a fascist every chance you get, then you might be guilty of being that noisy gong that the Apostle Paul talked about, and you might be full of crap. So, love your neighbor even when it's hard. But why, why are we each other's neighbors? What does that even mean to be neighbors? This leads me to the second passage I want us to remember. It's from Genesis 1.27, which says, So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So we're all neighbors, and we all have the potential to show that sacrificial neighborly love towards people because we're all created in the exact same image, in God's image. The problem is sometimes people don't always act like this. If they're not familiar with Christianity, then they might not know. There is a lot of theological thought out there that states after the fall, which is the the first sin of humankind, the consequence of that sin was that our image bearing of God was tarnished. So humans weren't able to recognize our equal worth that each other have. The founder of the Methodists, though, John Wesley, believed that when a person accepts Christ uh, as Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit works to restore that image of God within the believer over the span of their life. So that's, uh, that's a part of problem fundamentalism that I have which essentially says that the Holy Spirit only brings a person up to the point of salvation, and then after that, it's up to the believer to maintain their faith. I, I, I feel that that's wrong, and I, I side with Wesley on this. Now, anyway, I don't want to get sidetracked. So what I'm saying is, is the Holy Spirit, who essentially helps us to become like Christ, especially in the way that we live, There is a transformation happening here where the more we surrender to the Holy Spirit, the more he works in us and the closer we look like Christ. We mature in our faith more and then we have a larger capacity to love as Jesus did and still does. Some people call this process sanctification. And like I said before, sanctification is not this external rule-following, that fundamentalist theology might have you believe but since we're all created in the image of God though we are given this intrinsic worth by God since we all have this worth we are equal with one another no matter what differences we try to label ourselves or others with so we as Christians must remember that as God's people we should view everyone as image bearers of God so being made in the image of God also has another function. One of my favorite New Testament scholars name is N.T. Wright and he has a unique perspective about this. He shared a story that one time when he was a child and was sick his mother placed a mirror outside his door and tilted it in such a way that he could see into the room that she was in and she could see the room that he was in. He suggests that God places humans in his world so that he can reflect his love into the world through humans. So when God's people are looking after the world by bringing God's healing and restorative justice to the world, we are reflecting God into the world. So what does it say about the image of God when God's people align with politics in such a way where we're tearing down entire groups of people so that we can be politically dominant? I think you know the answer. If what I just said sounds like we have a lot of responsibility, well, it's true, we do. And that leads me to my third passage. I thought about highlighting the Great Commission because it's Christ's command to the disciples. And if you don't know what that is, you can look it up in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. However, I think it's uh, commonly given for discussions like this, but I want to talk about instead 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18-20, through 20, which says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Both letters to the Corinthians, they are excellent windows to what was going on in the church in the thick of ancient Greek culture. Some in the church of Corinth, they were expecting their new faith to conform to Hellenistic ways of life. Yet yeah, Paul, Paul, the Apostle Paul, had to remind them that they had given themselves over to Christ and because of that they're new creations, meaning they don't live the same way and they shouldn't see things the same way that they used to. God had acted in Jesus on the cross in a way that brought a world that has had become corrupt to bring it back to him so that the world can become restored. When Jesus rose from the grave, he entrusted that the ministry of reconcil- he entrusted that ministry of reconciliation to the new church. This ministry of reconciliation, how many times can I say that? <laughs> has a couple of functions. One is that the church brings people to Christ so that God's creatures are reconciled back to him as the passage says but uh, the other function is is so that believers can reconcile with one another because the love of Christ is within them so this newness which god god brings through christ is something that had has been promised since the old testament there's a song that we sing sometimes on sundays that goes god is the god of the promise there's uh, some patterns in the Bible where you see God promised something and that he fulfills something. And he, do- he does that with um, Jesus. So we now not only share in that promise, we present it to the world. We are people of the promise. We are, as Paul says, the ambassadors of Christ ambassadors are not only to speak on behalf of who they represent, but in the case, uh, in this case, they also are expected to act as who they are representing so that the person who is hosting the ambassador gets a picture of the one who sent them. And I know I already touched on this a little bit ago with the image of God, but my point is, is that the world isn't going to get a clear picture of who Jesus is if we're not acting as a good ambassador. Another thing that ambassadors do is that they often go into places where they aren't the resident, but they they go into places that are hostile to the one that they serve. I hate to sound cliche here, but much of the world is hostile to the message and way of Christ. In the United States, we've been fortunate that we can freely practice Christianity and also make it part of the fabric of the country. But at the same time, it sort of bubbled us into where when countering worldviews push back or criticize our views, we lash out, we become aggressive and look self-righteous. That's a lack of maturity. A spiritual lack of maturity can also give way to fear we see that from Christians on both the left and the right. I want to be very clear that it is both sides. And they use fear to stoke a political agenda. For example, one of my biggest criticism towards the religious right in 2016 was that they fearmongered in such a way that it portrayed that God would cease to exist if Hillary Hillary Clinton won the presidency. Now, don't get me wrong here. It's one thing to warn people, and you should make people aware of what the opposing candidate represents because if it goes against your worldview and things that you feel threaten, I guess, your Christian values, whatever you want to call them. Um, then you should let people know, hey, this person believes in this, which is against what we believe. But the problem is when you do it in excess, it becomes fear-mongering. And if there is one thing about the United States is that we love excess. Everyone thinks when they're acting like this that they're being prophetic. But in reality, they're being Excessive. However, the faithful ambassador of Christ looks and acts like Christ, okay? The character of Christ is someone who has love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You know these traits to be fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians. And Paul goes on to say a few verses later uh, that we should not go on to be conceited, provoking, and envying one another. The Spirit is the one who produces the maturity in us to become like Christ, and it's evident in our character by the fruit it bears. So, in review, here are the three things that I want us to remember when taking part in in the political process. The first is that loving God with all your being also means loving your neighbor who has different beliefs than you. Uh, The second is that everyone on the planet is made in the image of God despite the labels that have been put on them. The third is that if you follow Christ, you represent him. And it's, it's wise to be led by the Holy Spirit so that you can conduct your ambassadorship maturely and faithfully in a matter that wins others to Christ. I just want to say that I'm not trying to convince you to not stand up for what you believe in, uh, especially politically. Uh, We should do it every chance we get. Nor am I saying to you uh, that you shouldn't inform yourself on politics and the party that you choose to vote for. Um, You should do that, and you should help inform others. In fact, if you're not doing that, maybe you're doing yourself a disservice and others a disservice. You know, don't just go along with things because it's the trend. But I do want you to consider if you've ever sacrificed your witness for Christ so you could be so you could come out on top politically. Because whether we like it or not, believing in God and claiming that you cannot be a Christian if you're not allegiant to X party is false. As Tim Keller said in his article, it's not a package deal. Uh, God's not a Democrat. He's not a Republican. And God isn't even an American. I remember the first time I heard that. That was tough to hear, and I don't know why, but it it just was. Much of what I've said, I've struggled with, and I still do. I can't tell you the number of times in the past that I've said words like libtard, Um, I've spent almost a month prepping this episode, as I do with most of them, and I've been challenged with the material that I've used to the point of it feeling like just an extended punch in the gut, especially while reading the Bible. I just believe, though, that if we truly want to see some kind of spiritual transformation for this country then it is, it's Christ that we actually need to place first in our lives, not just say we do, but we actually need to do it and surrender daily to him and the guidance of the Holy Spirit so that we can be the salt and we can be the light that Jesus called us to be. I want to do something I don't usually do, and I want to close with a prayer. So if you will join me, uh, here I go. Heavenly Father, I thank you for all that you've given us. I thank you for what you did for us on the cross, that Christ was risen and defeated sin and death. I thank you for the guidance of your Holy Spirit who works within us to break down those spiritual strongholds placed in our path by the enemy, but also placed there by ourselves. I ask that you would continue to mold us into a people that look like Christ so that we can carry out the mission that was given to us by you and I pray this in the precious name of Jesus amen that does it for this episode but before I go I want to point out that uh, at least 70% of my audience is women I think that's pretty interesting I didn't expect that So I want to ask the women out there listening to this, are there any questions you have for me regarding women and Christianity? Um, It can be specific or broad. It doesn't matter. Is there something that you'd like to hear me cover? Um, Just let me know. and You can do that in two ways. You can join the uh, Theology Taco community on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash theology taco. you can message me, or you can send me an email at taco at gmail.com. And for everyone, if you like this podcast and you want to become a contributor a contributor to it, there's a Patreon account set up, and you can find that um, at Patreon.com slash TheologyTaco. Uh, I should be back in a month or so, but until then, God bless.